And if you could, open up to John 3, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, in the Pew Bible, it should be uh, page 887, 887. And over the past week, last week we began a new series uh, titled Conversations with Jesus. And so what we're doing is we're studying the interactions that Jesus had with many people while he was on this earth. And what we are looking at is what did Jesus find important to talk about? And how did he have these conversations? What was important and how did he have these conversations? And what Jesus had to say then is the same thing that he has to say now. It is just as influential, just as profound, and it teaches us how to engage our culture. It teaches us how to love and show concern for one another. And it teaches us how we should view ourselves in light of our Creator. And so last week we studied uh, a group of individuals, three individuals, uh, who came to Jesus, where Jesus came to, and desired to follow. And yet, there were some uncertainties There were some comforts, there were some distractions that were keeping them from following Jesus. And so Jesus addresses these uh, uncertainties. He addresses these distractions. And so today, we are going to talk about another one-on-one encounter between Jesus and a man with extraordinary, extraordinary spiritual uncertainties and doubts. And so, without further delay, let us open up to our passage in John 3. We're going to go through verses 1 through 21. This is what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you not a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how could I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except for he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, this is one of the most famous, notable sections of Scripture, specifically because of John 3.16. Because it's so clear and so unfiltered, the gospel so clearly presented to us in that one verse. But this section has so much more than just John 3.16. And so before we feast on the truths, Uh, that Nicodemus and Jesus talked about. Let's pray. Father God, thank you um, that you have given us the opportunity to come together and study your word. Father, I pray that you would break the hard and stony ground of our heart so that you may plant your word deep within us and that it may grow and bear fruit. Father God, bless this time and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So over the past uh, summer, I've had the privilege um, and the blessing of going over a book uh, with a friend. And this book is titled, Not a Fan. The whole premise of the book is to ask this question, are you a fan of Jesus Christ or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And in one of the chapters, Jesus, or the author, kind of introduces this idea of what would it look like if you met with Jesus. And so it reads like this. Picture in your mind yourself walking into a local coffee shop. You grab a snack and get a drink, and then you walk towards the back where it's not so crowded, and you find yourself a small table. You take a sip of your drink and enjoy a few quiet minutes. Now imagine that Jesus comes in and sits down next to you. You know it's him because of the sandals and the blue sash. You're unsure what to say. It's an awkward moment, and you try to break the silence by asking Jesus to turn your drink into wine. And he gives you the same look that he gave Peter. Before he he has a chance to respond, you suddenly realize you haven't prayed for your food. And so you nervously pray out loud, trying to impress Jesus. And you pray these three things we pray. To love thee more dearly, to see thee more clearly, and to follow thee more nearly day by day by day. You quickly say amen, and you realize that you just quoted Ben Stiller's prayer from Meet the Parents. Before you have a chance to make things any more awkward, Jesus skips the small talk and gets down to the point. He looks you in the eye and he says, it's time that we define this relationship. So that's the question that this series is going over, a conversation with Jesus. And I wonder, what would a conversation with Jesus look like with you? If Jesus was to sit down with you, what questions would you ask him? What would the topic be? What would Jesus respond with? And what would he have to say to you? And so today we're studying a passage where Nicodemus gets this rare opportunity to have this one-on-one conversation and to ask 
the questions that are dear to his heart. And so with that, let's get into it. So right off the bat, we see that things are not what they appear. We have this Pharisee named Nicodemus. But he's not just some Pharisee, but he's one of the ruling elders of Israel. There were 70 of them. He was a ruling elder of Israel. And on top of that, he was the teacher of Israel. Not just a teacher, but over all of Israel, this man, Nicodemus, was the teacher over all of Israel. Everything concerning scripture from Genesis to Malachi was his territory. It was his job to know it, to memorize it, to know every doctrine, to know everything about it. On top of it, Nicodemus, his name itself means victory of the people. So even his parents had this extraordinarily high expectation for him to live up to. And this guy, this man, this Pharisee, is sneaking around in the night to ask spiritual questions to this nobody from Galilee. This rabbi that kind of came out of nowhere. He's he's fresh, he's new, he's, he's different. But really nobody... So why is he doing this? Why at night? Why with all of this secrecy? Well, I think verse 3 shows us why. Verse 2 shows us why. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and that no one can do these signs unless God is with him. This Pharisee, this man who should know everything, comes to Jesus and says, Listen, You and I are teaching a different message about salvation and about the kingdom. And even though I am a ruler and and the teacher of Israel, God is with you, not with me. And so he's sharing this spiritual concern, this doubt that maybe Nicodemus is wrong. And he comes to Jesus, and in this statement, he's really asking, what am I missing that you have. And so Jesus answers Nicodemus's statement like a question. He just answers it like a question, saying, Truly, truly, unless truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus immediately jumps to the heart of the problem that Nicodemus is having. And he uses this phrase, born again. And there's two ways you can translate born again. There's born again, but equally so, you can translate it born from above. And so the question really is, which one is it? Is it being born again or born from above? And the answer is both. Salvation is to be born again and to be born from above. Jesus is laying down the foundational truth of salvation. And he specifically uses this imagery of birth to explain salvation. The conversation that Jesus is having, what does Jesus have to say about salvation? That you must be born again, and you must be born from above. And I love that he uses birth, right? Because I don't know if anyone in here has ever caused their own birth, or somehow convinced their parents to have a baby, But that's not me, and I really doubt that's not you. 
You can't cause your own birth in the same way that you cannot cause or prompt or convince God through any means to give you salvation. It can't be earned. It can't be deserved. In fact, you're like an infant. There is nothing previous to you. You're a new creation. And you see, this idea would have been completely foreign to the Pharisees at the time. They had forgotten about Abraham and his faith that was counted as righteousness. They forgot about the prophet Habakkuk. It's a really hard uh, Hebrew name. Habakkuk. Yeah, we'll say that. They forgot about him when he said, the righteous is going to live by faith alone. And instead of looking at the law as pointing to Christ, looking at the sacrifices as pointing to a need that can't be fulfilled, instead they look to the law as their salvation. Salvation is to be earned. And so it's no surprise that Nicodemus, his second question is about methodology. Nicodemus asks, how can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? How can he achieve what Jesus is talking about? How can he try and, and be reborn? And so Jesus has to further explain. He says, truly, truly, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again, for the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Jesus is saying this, this rebirth is not one of flesh. It is not physical. It is a spiritual rebirth. Rather, it is being born of water and spirit. And what does this mean? There's a few ways people have interpreted People believe um, the water represents a physical birth and the spirit represents a spiritual birth. So first you must be born physically and then you can be born spiritually. And although that's true, that doesn't really fit what Jesus is trying to say here. Some would say that being born of water and spirit, the water means baptism and that means baptism is required for salvation. But that doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture and so most commentators believe that Jesus is referring to an Old Testament passage that Nicodemus would have been familiar with as the teacher of Israel. And this comes from Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and, you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my command. Jesus is hinting to Nicodemus, look back to the scriptures. Are you not a teacher of Israel? Look back to the scriptures. This it happens when God sprinkles you with water, when God puts a new spirit within you. And it's like the wind. You don't know where it starts, and you don't know what caused it, and you don't know where it's going. But it comes as it, and goes as it pleases. 
And when you hear the sound of it, you recognize it. When you hear the sound of salvation, when you experience salvation, you recognize it as a work of God. So baffled by this, Nicodemus asks his last question that was recorded in John. He says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you not a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of the things that we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things, you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is pulling a Jack Nicholson on Nicodemus. You want heavenly truth? You can't handle the heavenly truth because you can't even understand the physical, the earthly truth of birth. How could you possibly understand? How could I possibly explain heavenly rebirth? He continues, no one has ascended into heaven except he who ascended, who, no one has ascended, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God lo- so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn it, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We come to our our third point, that salvation is believing in the exaltation or the lifting up and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus alludes back to this Old Testament passage in in the book of Numbers. It's a book that we usually just skip over. And the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're being tormented by these snakes. They're coming into the camp and they're biting people and they're killing people. And so Moses prays, God, save us from this. And God says, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and lift it in the center of camp so that everyone can see it. And if someone is bit, if they simply look to this bronze serpent that's been lifted up, they will be healed and they will not die. If they simply look to it, they will not die. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up in the same way that anyone who looks upon the cross will be saved. Anyone who believes in his exaltation will be saved. And Jesus is obviously foretelling how he's going to die on a cross. Jesus tells Nicodemus that salvation is only to those who believe in the Son of Man. So salvation is not only being born again and born from above, And it's not only being born of water and of spirit, both of those things being works of God, things that you cannot cause yourself. But being born again means believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his exaltation and sacrifice. That our responsibility is not to earn rebirth or not to earn the washing and regeneration, but rather to respond to them in belief 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, this is so contrary to Nicodemus. This is so contrary to what the Israelites believed at the time that salvation would be. Because salvation is not by reputation or good standing. And listen, Nicodemus, he would have had a reputation and great standing amongst men. And yet it's not by reputation and good standing. And so we need to be careful that we don't think that somehow how man views us is how God views us. Because when we stand before God, it is ultimately not the opinions of man that by which we enter the kingdom of God, but it's how God views us and what God has done in our life and whether we believe in that gospel. Second, not believing that Jesus was a messenger of God. Now, do not hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying that salvation is not found in Jesus Christ or that God didn't send Jesus with a message because those things are true. But Nicodemus simply believed that Jesus was from God, but nothing further than that. Our faith needs to go farther than simply believing in the historical facts of Jesus. Not just the historical facts and the good things that he taught in the good life. That's not enough. And even Nicodemus understood that it wasn't enough. But rather we need to believe in the rebirth that we receive in Jesus Christ. Not just as a rabbi and a teacher, but as our Lord and as our Savior. Thirdly, not by deeds. And listen, we understand this, right? As Christians, those who believe in the Bible, and especially as Protestants, we believe that salvation is by faith alone and not by works so that no man can boast. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. Salvation is a gift. But if you're anything like me growing up, if you're anything like me, you don't worry about salvation by works. But maybe you worry about losing salvation by works. Maybe deep within you, there, there may be people here today that, that believe and think and look on themselves and say, I'm such a wretched sinner. So horrible and I, how could God love me when I continue to stumble and fall and sin against God? it obviously must mean that I'm not saved rather than I'm accursed. And you, and you, and you believe that God poured out his wrath on Jesus, but the, the day that you were saved, from then on, God has started to add, add more and more wrath that he will one day maybe pour out on you. And let me encourage you today that when God, 2,000 years ago, poured out his wrath, when his cup of wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross, there was not one drop of wrath saved for you. And there's nothing added to that cup that will be poured out on you on that last day. Romans 8.1, one of the most comforting verses of Scripture, is that there is no condemnation to those who are found in Jesus Christ. We can't earn our salvation by our works, and we can't lose our salvation by our works. We do not contribute to that. Our adoption into the kingdom is secure and permanent because it's been credited to us free of charge, and that debt is forever paid. 
Also, it's not by pedigree. John 3.16 would have been one of the most shocking, profound, and controversial things that Nicodemus would have ever heard in his life. Because for God, when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his son so that the world may be saved, that was unbelievable. To the Jewish people at that time, salvation was to the Jews. Salvation was only for the Jews. They believed that God hated the Gentile nations. He hated the world. And he only loved the Jews. And that when the Messiah came, it was to crush and destroy and annihilate the Gentile world. And to give salvation to the Jews. And so Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. God loves the nations. God's plan for the nations isn't to nuke them and to get rid of them, but to save them through the gospel. To save them in the same way that I am going to save you. So Nicodemus, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're saved from wrath. And just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're saved. Rather, all men are called to salvation. And so we need to be careful that we don't think that God is only searching after certain people. People who are wholehearted and, and wholesome and good and that God is going to save those people. But the people that hate God and the people that the atheists and the, the Pauls, the Sauls of the world, they are the enemies of God. And we don't need to, to talk to them. We need to argue with them. Or, so avoiding a type of person or avoiding that somehow salvation is innate within us. That because you're born into a Christian family or because you're a pastor's kid or because your grandmother prayed over you when you were young, that somehow that is salvation to you instead of salvation as rebirth and belief. So we need to be careful. And lastly, salvation is not by anything that we cause. And you know what? Thank goodness this is the truth. Thank goodness that this is the truth that we are, that salvation is not in our hands. Because we, as, as fallible, we as broken humanity could not possibly bear the weight of our own salvation. And day by day by day, we would fail to keep our salvation. And so thank goodness it's not by anything we cause and it's not maintained, um, or somehow kept within our hands. But salvation is through God. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century pastor and theologian, was quoted by saying, the only thing that you contribute to your own salvation was the sin that made it necessary. The rest is God's. So what can we learn from this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus? What about this exchange can, we, can teach us about conversations? Well, number one, a humility to learn. A humility to learn. Nicodemus was one of the greatest men over all of Israel at that time. He was the teacher of Israel. It, it's the equivalent of, of the Pope coming up to me and asking me spiritual questions. You expect the Pope that he would know his stuff and he would, he would understand the spiritual truths found in Scripture. And yet this man, high and exalted, this Nicodemus, comes to this nobody rabbi and is asking him questions, sits at his feet. And I cannot tell you how unbelievingly controversial that would have been 
to a first century reader. That a man of such high stature was learning from a man who is from Galilee even. Essentially a lower class citizen. And so I think something that we can learn is, is humility to learn. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to youth camps or youth events or have talked to even unbelievers and they themselves have a fresh and better and sometimes clearer perspective on scripture or clearer perspective on a piece of wisdom and I'm sitting at their feet and learning from them. So I think we need to be careful not to think too highly of ourselves or think too lowly of other people that we can't learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ of, of, of any age, um, of any stature. Second, we can learn to engage people that are not us. Engage people that are not us. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a leader of Israel, and he belonged to the very people that would have been uh, debating with Jesus and harassing Jesus during the day. Nicodemus was from the enemy camp. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, Jesus didn't get up and just shrug his shoulders and sign, put on his boxing gloves and get ready for a debate. And sort of put up his walls and, and just get ready to start yelling at someone. Instead, he welcomes him in to have a gentle conversation with a man who is seeking. He's a seeker of spiritual things, searching for a savior in the night. And so I think, honestly, there are more seekers than we believe. There are more people searching in the night for a savior than we believe. And though they put on a good mask, and though maybe they think they know, their heart is hungry for something. There was a, uh, a, Mormon, a young Mormon man named Micah Wilder. And he was a zealous Mormon. And when he was 19, it was his, his responsibility as a Mormon to go out and evangelize with a companion. And, and you've, you've heard of them, you've seen them. They come and they knock door to door and they evangelize. And one day, he was, he was you know, going throughout the town in Orlando, Florida with his friend. And they see a Baptist church with about 500 Congregants. And he thinks to himself, he's so zealous and he be- strongly believes that if he could go into this and he could convince the pastor, this Baptist pr- pastor of the Mormon gospel, he would get his entire flock also. And so that's what he does. He comes up and he, he's patient, he's quiet, and he waits throughout the entire service. And afterwards he comes up to the pastor and says, I have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the pastor just goes, all right, let's, let's talk. And he, and he brings the two into his office, and he sits down and has a conversation. He starts with this. He says, so what's your interpretation of the gospel? He doesn't sit down and reprimand them or yell at them or, or preach to them even. He just lets them talk. And then in response, he has responses, and, and they have responses, and he has responses. And he has a gentle conversation where not only they are heard by him, but he is heard by them. Eighteen months later, a whole 18 months, the pastor doesn't even know what happened to them. They leave. Eighteen months later, Michael Wilder, after reading scripture, becomes a Christ follower. Him and his, his Mormon companion become a Christ follower. And then there, they go to their girlfriends. And they convert them. 
And then they go to their families and convert them. And they all leave the Mormon faith. And it all started with a Baptist preacher who, instead of preaching at them, sat down and had a conversation, engaged with somebody who seemingly was from the enemy camp. I think another thing we can learn is dialogue over a monologue. And here's the thing. I'm not saying there isn't time for sermons and lessons because this sermon in itself is pretty one-sided. It's mostly me talking to you other than maybe a few responses from my sweet mother, a few amens here and there. But there's not much response. But there's a time for that. But Jesus sometimes had the Sermon on the Mount, but other times in his conversations with the people, he had an open dialogue with responses and concerns and questions. And I think most of us, when, when we're approached by people to talk about Jesus, we sort of become super rigid. And we sound more like a, like a pre-packaged voicemail than we sound like a person who truly loves Jesus. And I think there's, there's really two reasons for that. One, it might be because we're just not prepared. We don't know the gospel. We don't know how to present the gospel. We don't know the scripture like we should. And I'm one of those people. And so when someone asks us, we sort of like ridge it up and, and give this like this paraphrased version of the gospel you heard 10 years ago. And people are sort of off put by that. Because it's not really a conversation. It's just like you suddenly became a robot and then you just phased in and phased out. Or if also you're anything like me, you're, you're passionate or nervous. Because there's, there's all of this, this wonderful information, all of this, this life-changing information about Scripture. And, and when someone asks, it's like the dam broke. And they're just flooded with everything that I think and know about the gospel. And instead of, of being refreshed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ, they're just mowed over and they're drowned in a series of monologues instead of just talking and having conversations and being fluid. And so I think, and I know that Jesus in his conversations, he gave room for questions and responses and time. And he had a dialogue with his listeners that, were, that was fluid Fifthly, I think we can be firm but gentle. Firm but gentle. And what I simply mean by this is that Jesus in his conversations allowed for questions and responses, but he was also focused. He was also focused. By firm and gentle, I mean this, that conversations have a clear direction. They have a clear direction and purpose, but... It is also ready to respond to the obstacles in people's minds. It's not too rigid that it breaks people's attention and they just sort of lose interest, but it's not too soft that during the conversation it rabbit trails off to things that aren't important. Rather, it's firm but gentle. And lastly, we can give conversations time to change people. Conversations time. Like Micah, it takes time for conversations to change people. Jesus doesn't tell, John doesn't tell us that Nicodemus just bowed down in that moment and repented of his sins. In fact, the next time we hear about Nicodemus, 
We hear it two times in the New Testament. The next time is almost a year later. In Nicodemus, when the Pharisees are, are trying to muster up accusations against Christ, Nicodemus kind of timidly defends Christ and says, hey, hey, guys, guys, I mean, we, we, guys, we, we, can't, uh, we can't accuse someone unless we hear them, right? And the Pharisees are like, are you too a Galilean? Are you siding with him? And so in that moment, Nicodemus is, is kind of on the fence. His heart has been softened to who Jesus was because of that conversation. But the next time, almost a year after that, when we hear about Nicodemus, it's at Jesus' burial. And it says that Nicodemus was there, and he came with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, for us, that means nothing. It just means a lot of ointments. But for the first century readers, they would have understood that 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, that was the equivalent that a king would receive if he was buried. And so Nicodemus is providing for Jesus a royal burial. Why? I think it's because Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he told him, when you see the Son of Man high and lifted up, anyone who believes in him may receive salvation. And in that conversation he had over two years ago, when Nicodemus saw Jesus on the cross, in that moment, in his mind, he probably thought, this is it. And that all started because Jesus was willing to sit down and have a conversation from someone of the enemy camp. Church history also tells us that Nicodemus became a Christ follower. He was baptized. He lost his position as a teacher. He lost his position as a ruler. And the Pharisees kicked him out. And he lived the rest of his life in poverty, but as a Christ follower, as, though, as one who believes in Jesus Christ. And so like Nicodemus and like Micah, conversations take time. They take time. Our, our culture is so ready for the instant gratification of salvation. And it takes time. It doesn't always come in that moment. And it might not even come from you. They might not even repent of their sins to you. It might be someone down the road. So village, I'll leave you this before we pray. Salvation is to be born again and to be born from above. Salvation is to be born of water and to be born of spirit. And salvation is to believe in the exaltation and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is a work of a merciful and loving God who desires all of the world to be saved. And if we trust what Jesus talked about, what Jesus taught, and we reflect how Jesus had these conversations with people, I think we're going to have many more Michael Wilders and Nicodemuses running around in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you for salvation. We worship you that you are good to us and you have given us something that is so unbelievably treasured. A new birth. A new life in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for um, John 3 and, and the story of Nicodemus and what it has taught us. And I pray that we will learn exactly what you have taught us today in this message. 
Father, thank you for all of these things, and we worship you for our salvation. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.